This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at myhealthpolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started at myhealthpolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for. And done. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called myhealthpolicy.com and done. Switched to a better plan. And Michael. I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face. And done. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to compare top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. I'm Brian Goldfinger of Goldfinger Injury Lawyers. Is your insurance company forcing you to go back to work when your doctors say you can't? If this sounds familiar, look no further than my law firm. Visit goldfingerlaw.com and get us working for you. Get Goldfinger today. Quick heads up as far as this episode. Apologies on my behalf. The audio spikes a little bit more when I'm speaking as opposed to Adam. We had a couple things mixed and matched when, as far as how it was going when we were speaking. He comes across pretty quiet. Sometimes I spike a little bit. I tried to mix and match. I did the best I could. Going forward, Adam will be coming on the podcast, and we're going to work out a bit of software, and we'll have better quality and production going forward. But as far as that goes, for this one, it does get a little bit loud on my end, and it is a bit quiet on his end. So sorry for that. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Samson Folk, and I'm joined here by Adam McQueen. Adam, what's up? I'm doing good, man. Sam, it's a pleasure to be here. My first Raptors Republic podcast. And what better time to be on the podcast than the craziest finish of the season last night? Yeah, great time to break the seal. Um, You watched that game, obviously. What was your take on it watching live? I mean, it was absurd, man. Like, I I originally was just kind of focused on Kemba Walker the whole time. Like, just don't let Kemba get open for a three. Don't let Kemba get open. And then there's this tip. Nobody really knows what's happened. I kind of looked away like, all right, game's over. And then next thing I know, the whole crowd's going nuts and my Twitter is blowing up. So, yeah, I mean, that was the immediate reaction. It was it was pretty funny because I was in the arena and your reaction was pretty similar to the arenas as well as... Everyone kind of got up, ready to leave their seats, and once they saw the shot fell in, I mean, it was pandemonium. Like, they didn't know what to do. There was cheering, but then everyone realized what was happening. There was booing, and then I didn't, like, because when you're watching the game, everything's going crazy, and so they said they're going to review it, and I said, okay, uh, you know, maybe they review it. Maybe the Raptors don't lose this one, and then kind of just as an aside, the PA announcer was like, and the ruling on the floor stands, and it's like Raptors lose. Wow, I can't believe Jeremy Lamb hit that damn shot. It was like the craziest thing. Um, that's that's going to be one of the most like memorable moments you've seen live now at this point. That, as a sports fan. That's definitely, that is the most memorable I've seen live. I've been to, I think, maybe five NBA games, and Marcin Gortat was at three of them, so that's an anecdote of its own. <laughs> I, I've thought of starting a Polish Hammer fan club, which would be probably six members deep. 
all of six subscribers, but devoted fans nonetheless. Yeah. Um, the other craziest one, I was at the Golden State Warriors game when Bradley Beal punched Draymond Green in the face, which was equal to or better than Jeremy Lamb's uh, game winner. <laughs> Because of fan satisfaction, yeah. Yeah. Probably, probably a different environment too. Oh my God! It was at Oracle, and it was like they were out for blood. They hated Bradley Beal. And was the that cr- peak was that peak Oracle years, like the, when they really started to get going. That was uh, last year at the start of the year. So it was Kevin Durant's second year in, and right, he right, right. yeah, and it was so they were playing the Wizards. Um, Bradley Beal and Draymond Green got into kind of a scuffle. They did whatever. Draymond Green elbowed Bradley Beal really hard. Then Bradley Beal just wasn't having it, so he swung on him. And then, crazy thing is I saw it on Twitter, the actual replay where Draymond Green elbowed him. But in the arena, they cut the video so it didn't show Draymond Green elbowing him. So it just looked like Bradley Beal just swung on him for no reason. Which I was like, this is slander. This should be illegal. And obviously, I'm not a big Warriors fan because... I hate the monopoly of talent they have. So, I yeah, I was disturbed by it. I was like, I can't, they can't have everything their way. Draymond Green can't be winning championships and a good guy, okay? Like, he, he's got to get punched in the face every once in a while. That's just, that's the price you pay. Um, it, was, it was also, it's kind of, uh, I don't want to go off too on a tangent, but like, right before that, I'm obviously in March Madness zone right now, and I'm watching this ridiculous UCF-Duke game. The finish is wild in that, and I'm like, you know what? Let's go to some Raptors, Charlotte Hornets basketball. Let's get some normal basketball. Nothing crazy happening. And then this occurs. So it was sensory overload for about four hours yesterday. Yeah, that makes sense. And so the Raptors, they had a great start to that game, and we were going to talk about the game a little bit, and we can tie it into one of the first points we want to talk about is that the start of the game was really impressive for the Raptors. Marcus All hit his three to open things up. Pascal Siakam hit a three. And they were playing really nice basketball. Pascal and Mark were winning their matchup. It seemed quite obvious. And it's indicative of something that's maybe troubling, maybe something that we just assume will work itself out. You might have the answer. The Raptors are shooting the three at a really high level, passing the ball at a really high level with caveats, of course, higher turnovers and all that. But they're doing these things at a really high level, and it's not translating directly to wins since Marcus saw Jeremy Lin's arrival. What do you think of that? I mean, the Marcus Gasol and Jeremy Lin arrivals, I think they coincide with this, but it's also, we, we can't av- avoid the fact that this is the dog days of the regular season right now. And I mean, like you said, Gasol and those stars look really good in those opening stints together. I mean, look at how they played on the road at OKC, and even yesterday. And it's it, the frustrating thing as we're watching right now is that they kind of flounder when this old bench unit comes on, and it sort of negates the positive start, and we're back to kind of level playing field again after such a positive start with the starters so that's kind of what i'm what i'm seeing but really the turnover percentage in march has been has been bad we're we're mid middle in the middle in the league in terms of our turnover percentage i think we're at 14 percent over the season but through march right now the raptors are dead last in the league with a 16.2 percent turnover percent so that's really huge and obviously Fred Van Vliet's injury and Larry being in and out of the lineup's gonna gonna account for that. But that's that's something that I think has to start cleaning up and you can point to the fact like, oh, maybe these games aren't as meaningful, but there still needs to be like they need to take care of the ball far better than they are. Um yeah, and I look at Siakam and they're really empowering him to be a playmaker, which has been it's been awesome. And he's really growing into this role but at the same time there are going to be growing pains I mean he's had five turnovers seven turnovers and yesterday he had five as well in the last three games which is which is kind of a tough pill to swallow do you have any remedy for how they maintain his playmaking keep empowering him but also cut down on turnovers I mean I think they're they're really giving him a really long leash at this point which is fair enough, especially with Lowry kind of being... He seemed to be on a minutes restriction yesterday and Fred just getting back into it. So I think really just cutting down the amount of times he is the playmaker to a point where, yeah, he's 
getting fed these opportunities, but he's also not being depended on. So I guess that links into another thing we wanted to talk about. Kyle Lowry, yesterday, obviously you alluded to the minutes restriction, something he might have had. It wasn't talked about um, at practice today. Nick Nurse didn't mention anything about it. None of uh, us journalists, reporters, whatever it might be, talked about it. But, sorry, but he obviously has his pulse or his finger on the pulse of the game. And you saw, like, even when he did score in the game last night, it was generally a very timely score. It was a very timely bucket. And so how, with him having a reduced role in the offense going forward and looking to maybe take a bit away from Siakam, how does he find his offense? What are you looking for him to do to find, obviously, in the regular season, early on, he was dominating. He was an MVP candidate, and then he went through a stage where he was, you know, better than a replacement-level player, but his shooting was it was not good at all, and it was hampering how well the Raptors could play. And now to right now where he's injured, like, how does what version of him is pieced together through all these different points in the season, and what does it look like in the playoffs? What do you think? I, I think you touch on it really well, though, that he's – he can pick his moments very well. It's something that Larry's always been good at. He hasn't had to uh, have the ball forced into his hand or find his shot. Like he can just find his way within the within the offense. And yeah, he started off well, and there was that very there was this kind of weird deferential period, especially when he was playing with Kawhi. That it was almost it was so frustrating to watch how it seemed like he was consciously just avoiding taking shots, but. I've actually, I'll, I'll disagree to some extent. I think since Gasol's come to the Raptors that we found a better Lowry. And I know the injuries, he's been in and out. But what I'm really liking from Lowry at this point is how improved his outside shot is given the better ball movement that we talked about earlier. And realistically, he's been 35% from three on the season, which is which is fair. But in March, he's at 42% now. And... I know that's a smaller sample size, but I think this is a lot of causation to do with Gasol coming into the team and how Lowry and Gasol work together because he's getting way more wide open looks from three as well, which is something that we really need for Lowry if he is going to be more deferential and let Siakam become more of a playmaker. He's going to have to be an off-the-ball, catch-and-shoot, three-point shooter, which we know he can do and is still really good at. So, I mean, if we look at his stats right now on three-point shooting this month, he's gone up from about 37% of his threes during the season were catch-and-shoot threes, and now they're 42% of them are. And he's t- toned down the amount of pull-up threes that he's doing, which is just, it's just a lower percentage shot. Larry can hit these shots. We've seen him hit these shots, but I'd much rather see him get a quick catch-and-shoot three like the one he had with that give and go with Fred yesterday which is those are shots I want to see Larry taking and at the same time yeah he's he's wide open threes which according to NBA.com is having six feet or more uh the nearest defender being six feet or more away he's uh 27 percent across the season wide open threes and now it's gone up to about 32 percent since Gasol's arrived so I think he's getting open looks and I think this is how he will look in the playoffs. He's going to obviously be a vital part of the Raptors offense, but at the same time, fitting in when Siakam and Kawhi are going to be the primary playmakers. So he obviously, like I said earlier, he's had a lot of different, um, I guess, trends through this season. You're speaking of one where he's starting to get more catch-and-shoot opportunities. We also spoke earlier about finding the right times to score. He has been really good in the past but hasn't quite found it this year about mixing and matching the inside and the outside game. If he's taking more catch-and-shoot triples, do you want him relegated to more catch-and-shoot or do you want a weak-side attacker to come along with that type of like that type of play style? Yeah, I mean, we, I, we can't reduce him entirely to a catch-and-shoot player because, I mean, that's not what Kyle Lowry is. It's, he's the heartbeat of the team. He's kind of the engine... No matter how great Siakam's been this year and Kawhi is the best player on the team, Larry's still the engine that drives this. So I think, I mean, this is depending on the ankle injuries. I really, really hope that that doesn't limit how aggressive he is in terms of getting into the paint, finishing in the paint, and really just 
being aggressive on that pick and roll opportunities as well. So, I mean, that's where I'm going to be most nervous is do these ankle injuries limit how aggressive he is with as a playmaker? But, I mean, I guess that's it's, it sucks to say, but we'll see how much these injuries really affect him. He's He said he's going to play through the season with it. He said it's not going to be fully healed, but, I mean... Let's let's hope that you can get to at least the peak Kyle Lowry that we've seen over the years. Yeah, that's it was a weird thing to hear like Kyle Lowry say that. And even when like I practiced today when it was posed to Nick Nurse, like the, his face was genuinely shocked that <laughs> that Kyle Lowry said, Oh yeah, it won't be healthy for the rest of the year. Then Nick Nurse just kind of opted to say, like, uh, I guess that's up to Kyle and Alex. I don't know anything. <laughs> But, like, when, when Eric Kareen, like, posed it to him, like, and about Kyle Lowry saying he won't be healthy for the rest of the year, he was, like, his eyes went up there. He's like, what? So, I don't know what that situation is. I mean, I guess it is, like Nick Nurse said, it's up to Alex and Kyle. And if, you know, the healthier he is, the better it is, obviously, because he's been plagued by injuries that are severe and not so severe altogether. And especially, they mount up during the playoffs, so... Let's cross our fingers that that doesn't happen. An interesting thing, um, since we can finally get back to the game, obviously these these things are good to talk about. Um, Kawhi and Siakam finished the game. It was a very small ball lineup at the 5 and the 4. They played incredible defense. You said earlier that you were watching Kemba, hoping Kemba doesn't get the ball. Siakam stonewalled Kemba probably four or five times in the last five minutes, especially when they switched on the pick and roll. And Kawhi Leonard skied for, like, a game-saving block, it seemed like at the time, which was bordering on goaltending, not goaltending. It showed a lot of potential from a small ball lineup like that. What did you see from watching that lineup? I mean, as you pointed to, I mean, the switchability, it's the ultimate spot. When we look at the Warriors' death lineup that's been the most vaunted lineup in recent memory, there's, there's no true center out there. Everyone can defend pretty much one to five or two to five and that's that's case in point with Siakam and Leonard that's why we're so excited about how they play and it, some of those defensive plays you really I really felt like they were just gonna sneak out this win just escape the jaws of defeat because man they those were momentum shifting plays and when, when when you look at small ball it's the biggest concern is the rebounding issue but man even with like Ibaka out there and at times Gasol as well as we're struggling rebounding the ball anyway so it, it didn't even feel like a significant drop off in that department what 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 are you thinking I I'm a huge fan of small ball I know it's not a panache it, it doesn't fix everything but especially last night watching Kemba Walker who is as capable as any player at breaking down a big man who is not fleet of foot I mean Kemba is electric He's one of the fastest guys in the league. And if he's not able to get past Siakam, if they can't win a matchup, like a, a mismatch from that, then that means that the Raptors, at least for guards, seem impenetrable as a defense. Now, there was a couple times they passed around it. You know, you saw the one play where, uh, I can't remember who got a layup, but it was Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet ended up under the rim. Kawhi Leonard and Siakam had both gotten spaced out to the three-point line playing defense. But in most cases, it was very, very high intensity, don't give up anything defense. So I really like seeing it. I thought that it was very high potential. And obviously, you and I were both big Marcus All fans, big Marcus All believers in this, oh, yeah. in this offense, in this defense. Wait, do not say anything bad about Marcus All here. Oh, no, I won't. No, I, uh, I'll refrain. Um, but like you, like you said, like his rebounding isn't as good as let's say a Jonas Valanciunas. And again, not inviting the debate, Uh-oh. B- but, um, asking for it today now. <laughs> yeah, but his rebounding isn't as good. So his offense, his offensive game needs, needs to come along a little bit more as much as it already has. Um, but otherwise, if, if his offensive game, if the rebounding isn't going to be a sizable, um, amount more than Siakam is able to provide, then the Raptors' best lineup will be Siakam at the five. So my question to you is, as a big Marcus All fan, how does Marcus All make the Siakam at five not the best Raptors lineup? Make it that it's Siakam at the four, 
Leonard at the three, one of Van Vleter, Green at the two, and and Kyle Lowry. How does how does Marcus all do that? I, it pains me to say it, but I think if we're looking strictly on the defensive side of the ball, I don't know if he can, other than being a rim deterrent and as smart and as savvy and as quickly as Marcus all can get to the spot before the play develops. He's not the same rim deterrent as he was in years past. So I think defensively, like you pointed out, that the small ball lineup is better. And even um, in the way that they defended those pick and rolls, especially when they got torched from three, Blake uh, Blake Murphy from the Athletic wrote a big thing on it yesterday is how they got killed from three. And they really tried to trap Westbrook and Kemba in those pick and rolls with a big man. And they really paid for it. There was Obviously, it wasn't solely down to Gasol or Ibaka being out there. It was a lot of the secondary and third rotations that was allowing these open threes. But those sort of issues won't exist if we're able to just switch uh, Siakam onto a Kemba, onto a Westbrook, or in the Eastern playoff situation, onto a Kyrie Irving. Like That is why it's better. From an offensive point of view, I mean... I think Marcus Gasol has demonstrated when he's with that level of talent. I mean, that starting unit just has so much offensive potential that he can just fit in so seamlessly and he lets the ball move so fluidly that I I think that he allows him to reach the highest ceiling on the offensive side of the ball. But there's no taking away how, how effective that defensive small ball unit could be. And it's kind of a sidebar. You were talking about the, the game against Oklahoma City and you obviously saw then Siakam as Westbrook's primary defender. So do you think that Nurse jumped the shark instead of having him switch in pick-and-roll actions? He was already just saying Siakam's going to be our primary defender. What did you think of that matchup? I mean, Siakam on Westbrook, how could you not like that matchup? And especially that block and transition play was just, it fires me up so much seeing how Siakam's grown. Um... Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends because you, you're putting the onus on Siakam to battle over the screens, and you just, it's the same thing. You don't want Westbrook being switched onto one of those big men, but at the same time, we don't you can't go purely with a small ball lineup the whole time. Like, that's, just, that's just not an option. So, I mean, for those moments where you are going to have a big man, then sure, I think you can have Siakam start primarily on Westbrook, and... If, if worse comes to worse, then you trap. You don't really want to be getting switched Gasol into Westbrook one-on-one. But, I mean, for spells, that, that that's going to work. What do you think about it? I Like, I was a big fan of it just as a, as a spectator. To take it in and to see those two guys go at it is obviously exciting. Like you alluded to, getting caught on screens, that happened to him a lot. Westbrook was able to put him in jail a few times. Mm-hmm. But I thought that Siakam towards the end because there was a pretty rough like three minute stretch of it towards the end started to get how to win that matchup because he started moving off of Westbrook and he started crowding the passing lane which I think that's the way to do it I mean if you leave Westbrook in the like 12 let's say 10 to like 18 range and you ask him to make shots on the move and I think that Siakam you go under if it's there or if you're fighting, you hang back a little, and you, and the defender, let's say it's either one of Serge Ibaka or Marcus Gasol, you make sure there's not a rim run there, but you try and incentivize, obviously, the 10- to 18-foot shot. And Westbrook, he made, I think, two of them, but also with Siakam hanging back, Siakam got two steals just hanging back in the passing lane when Westbrook was looking for that pocket pass. There's ways to like outfox Westbrook in that matchup and to incentivize bad shots. And you can I'm excited to see Siakam try and do that to other guards going forward. I mean, we obviously saw him against John Wall last year not do the exact same thing. I mean, he didn't have as much trouble getting around screens. But Siakam's very capable of putting, I guess, guards in new and difficult positions to make decisions from. And that's that's what I like to see from Siakam in that in that type of defense. And yeah, teams have been. That's how teams have succeeded against Westbrook because you know Westbrook's going to shoot his team out of games sometimes. That's just that's the live, live or die by Westbrook. Uh, OKC. That, that's how he rolls. But it's funny you mentioned that. How do you see Siakam 
let's 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 look at let's project to maybe some Eastern Conference playoff matchups. Let's say Siakam is going on to D'Angelo Russell. How how is he going to go about that defense? Because you can't be ducking under those those screens with Russell around around ten to eighteen feet. Um, I think, and I I don't want this to seem like a cop out, but I think that if the Raptors play uh, D'Angelo in the Nets, I think that the Raptors win in five games, but D'Angelo averages like twenty eight or twenty nine. <laughs> I, I do think that's the answer. I, I talked to Blake about this, and he thought so too. It's D'Angelo, we saw it in every game. It wasn't super high energy for the Raptors, but the Nets did well, and especially D'Angelo against the Raptors, because he worked in the pick and roll, he put his guard in jail, he snaked the pick and roll, and he got to his spot. And obviously the Raptors, their scheme is to drop. And it doesn't matter if it was Gasol, Ibaka, or Jonas Valanciunas when he was there. That's everybody dropped, and and D'Angelo Russell made shots from the mid-range. That's not the way forward. I mean, we saw it last year in the playoffs. Mike Scott, John Wall hit a lot of mid-range jumpers. When that stopped falling, when they weren't shooting 88%, then, then the Raptors, like, mopped the floor with them. If the Raptors tried to play Siakam on D'Angelo Russell, which I would be there for, that would be two of my favorite players in a dance of defense and offense— uh, I think that you would see a lot of Siakam trying to crowd from behind. You know what I mean? Like make, making sure that D'Angelo Russell doesn't get to take the jump shot but has to take forward-leaning shots. Yeah. That, I think that's what I would, to kind of sandwich him between the rim and Siakam from behind. Obviously, don't play it so hard that you're bumping into him. gets and ones, like a Steph Curry type of thing. But I think that would be the way to defend him is crowd him from behind so that he's not shooting jumpers. Make him make him shoot floaters or make him try pocket passes in in confined areas. That's that would be my take on that matchup. How about you? It's, I mean, it's an interesting hypothetical. I mean, I would I would do exactly what you said there as well. Uh, and it's just it's because I was originally going to put Kyrie Irving out there, but it's not going to look like the Raptors will meet Boston unless they get to the Eastern Conference Finals, which they won't. The way that <laughs> no, well, fingers crossed. There. If they play Philadelphia, that's that's another option. He can defend Ben Simmons the way that he defended Westbrook, and even more so, he can. I mean, he could sit right under the rim, and Ben Simmons is still not going to shoot. So, I think I think those are the kind of options that are going to work for the Raptors. But another another question I kind of had for you that was brought up in Blake's piece as well is how they've recently trapped those pick and rolls against some uh, electric playmakers in Westbrook and Kemba, whereas they've traditionally always kind of sat back and been far more conservative. Would, what would you rather them be doing when it comes to these playoff situations? In the playoffs? Oh, man. See, that's the thing is I when I wrote the preview for the Charlotte game, I suggested that they were probably going to try and trap, and I saw I, I even put Kyrie's quote in there where Kyrie was lamenting that they didn't trap Kemba enough. Kemba had 35 points. And, like, it makes sense why you would want that, and I totally get it. But, and I, I had said that Serge Ibaka will probably end up starting because I thought that they were going to want to trap. What they ended up doing was just trapping with Gasol a little bit, and that was, like, right from jump, which was surprising. What I would do is with Gasol, I think that I would rely on Gasol's wit and defensive IQ that I would have to say, like, this guy is going to hang back and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean on him to make the right decision when he's jumping forward or baiting players into the mid-range or, like, f- like, watching their feet, tracking them to the rim and making difficult shots. That's with Gasol. With Serge, I think I would, I would try and get Serge to track all the way from the three-point line. See if he can do it because sometimes... Sometimes Serge really surprises us. Sometimes Serge pulls out like these crazy athletic feats. And for small, like maybe four-minute, five-minute pockets, I'd ask Serge to do that. If it's Siakam, switch it. If it's Leonard, switch it. Do that all day. That's that's my take on it. And Serge still has the freakish athletic ability to recover in those situations. And obviously that's not an ideal situation. But if anyone can recover in those situations after trapping like that, then it is Serge. And I, I totally agree with you. Like, it's you got to put your players in the position, the the best position for them to succeed. And for Gasol, it's so much 
he's so much better being that general in the middle of the floor and not veering too far from the paint. He's, uh, despite not having the same athleticism, he still has that verticality. He's still great at getting vertical when people do penetrate. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's the most effective way to use all of those guys and their defensive abilities. A quick question from last night's game. You are the, I guess, the authority on the spiciest plays, <laughs> um, which was one of my favorite articles of the year, uh, oh, for sure. It, yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, what was your favorite play from Siakam over the three game or the past three games? Let's say the two Oklahoma City games and then the one against the Charlotte Hornets. My favorite? It's got to be the block on Westbrook, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. The contextual factors, too, because when you're looking at the spiciest play, there is there's, there's his signature spin move, which we've seen a lot of. There's all of... It, it's not just pure Siakam athleticism. You've got to look at the moment. We've got to look at the people he's going against and how it made you feel at that moment. And when you see him blocking someone like Westbrook, who's obviously been all over the news the last week or two, and he's an abrasive guy. And so it's great to see Siakam, the world's most likable athlete, just completely put Westbrook in his place on that block and then do his trademark, get out in transition, and just cram one. So that's that's the one that's in the front of my mind right now. How about yourself? Do you have any off the top of your head? Uh, I'm really – I'm a sucker – so much so for the Siakam spin move. It's one of my favorite things ever. Like the steps he uses, the way he'll drop his elbow against a hip or a shoulder, depending on how like the guy's defending him. The way he uses like he uses the guy's knee sometimes to like gain momentum. Like he'll turn across it or he'll hit it so that they can't track him. It's I, I'm in love with the spin move. So any any one of his spin moves from those past three games is just, that's everything I like from him, everything there's, I want. There's so many variations that you mentioned. Like, this, the spin move has evolved. Everyone's like, oh, he's going to do the spin move. He's going to do the spin move. It's like, yeah, but how do you stop it? Because it used to be a very, like, agile, quick move that you would kind of do on these, like, loaf, loafing big men. But there's sometimes now where he, when he gets a smaller guy on, he almost just, like, swats them aside as he spins just to get an easy bucket. It's like, you can't stop me. I'm too big, too fast, too strong. And it's almost like a bully ball spin move that he's kind of got going now too. So that's that's a nice little evolution I like of the Siakam spin move, which will no doubt be in the Spice Index 2.0. Yeah, it's, man, it's like, sometimes it's like the hip speed Olympics because like <laughs> he rotates his so fast. And like you were saying, there's a bit of a bully ball element. Obviously, a lot of players... They like they'll hook with their elbow or their forearm, but Siakam sometimes you'll see him like drag his hip across a guy, and then like you'll see by the time Siakam's done, like he's facing forward, the guy's facing almost backwards, and Siakam's pushing off of his body towards the rim, whereas most guys get stuck pushing off sideways, going away from the rim. That's just the craziest part about Siakam is that he's so agile, he's so fast, and when it comes to small guys, so strong that whether it's a big guy, he can outspeed him and gain, like, get the mismatch that way. If it's a small guy, he can just outmuscle him. And if it's a guy who's even close to him, he can just out-nifty him, outmaneuver him. Like He can do all those types of things. Such a big fan of what he's doing. Oh, yeah. Most improved player. Probably most valuable player. Probably the GOAT conversation now. I yeah. mean, it's got to be, you got to ask, is he the greatest player of all time? I think it's it's pretty evident, yes. Pascal Siakam has to be the greatest player of all time. I don't know why anyone would entertain any other conversations, be it Michael Jordan, LeBron James, whoever. Michael Jordan wears horrible jeans. LeBron James is going to be in another bad movie. It's just Pascal Siakam, only spin moves, never anything when's else. Last, when's the last time Siakam passively ag- passive aggressively subtweeted one of his teammates i'll tell you never that's true except he does kind of give i guess fred a nasty look in their jiff peanut butter commercial i'm not sure <laughs> if that counts yeah fair enough fair enough i think i'm gonna move us along to the twitter questions now first question is from lewis zatzman 
and I'm going to let you know if you want to pull up the games in order. His question is, rank the rest of the season's games in order of how much you care. So obviously, this is kind of a, a take on, well, how important are things really? Should we care about how this is going? Obviously, he's alluding that there's a couple th- games that we shouldn't care about. Which are the ones you think are important? Hmm. The things I think are important. Well, we've got a nice little stretch here of Chicago, New York, Chicago, Orlando. And I mean, if that doesn't fire you up for some NBA basketball, then I don't know what will. But <laughs> realistically, I think it's going to have to be... It's going to have to be one of the potential playoff matchups in the first round. So they've got... They're at Brooklyn on April 3rd. Um, they host Miami on April 7th. And I guess there's an... Is there an outside shot that Orlando could get up to the 7th seed? If not, then I'm probably going to have to go with the Brooklyn-Miami matchups. And like we said, like the Brooklyn... The last time they played Brooklyn was an incredible game. That one was so exciting. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go with Brooklyn. The rest... I mean, take it or leave it. No no Derrick Rose from Minnesota. I'm not watching. Uh, Charlotte, well, if, if we get another Charlotte game like, like yesterday or on Sunday, sorry, then sure, maybe then, but I'll probably have to go with Brooklyn or Miami. How about yourself? Miami for me, simply because I would prefer that they don't play anybody because I guarantee that one of those goobers in those Miami jerseys is going to injure somebody. That's that's my take. I think Goran Dragic is gonna throw a damn elbow or something. One of those one of those guys is gonna injure somebody. So I would prefer if they just forfeit the game and just have a nice little party in South Beach, <laughs> something like that. Is I do have, I have a serious question on this note. Is um when we look at the schedule and like like Lewis has mentioned here, it's it's not a murderer's row at all. It's pretty weak and. Do you, do you like having such a weak schedule to finish? I mean, you could get a string of wins here, get some momentum going into the playoffs. It's Or is it the fact, like, we haven't played good good level competition since, since March 22nd, which will be the Oklahoma City game. And then when you get into that second round, knock on wood that they get into the second round, you haven't played a top-level team in a while. And it's it sort of makes me feel like... Uh, so it's a flashback to Philly last year when they really went on that hot stretch with with Simmons and Embiid out and they were just killing teams. But if you actually looked at the schedule, they killed terrible teams and then entered Boston in round two and they absolutely shut them down. So what do you think about that on the schedule in front? I think that whatever team they play in the first round, let's say it's Brooklyn, Detroit, or Miami, or Orlando, one of those teams... I think that those games are more impactful as far as how it registers in the brain, how they get ready for, let's say, their second round competition or an Eastern Conference Finals competition rather than playing like Oklahoma City in the third last game of the year. You know what I mean? Like I think like a game three against Brooklyn is a higher, like higher intensity, higher caliber game than whatever game they just played against the Oklahoma City Thunder. Because I think, like, they're they're playing their normal rotations. Like, Lynn has, and I know this is going to bug some people, but Lynn's minutes generally tank, and he's still getting play. It's yeah. Powell's minutes. You know, last night he was great. He just came in. He, he was awesome. He was a big, he's a breath of fresh air. He was huge on the glass. He was very helpful running around, on like, on defense. He got steals. He had his two triples. But also, he's inconsistent, and he doesn't always bring it. And so a playoff game, I think, is more indicative of where they are, obviously, than like uh, playing a, a really high-caliber team at the end of the regular season. So I just, I just want them healthy because I really – there's some people who don't, but you and myself, we really do believe in this version of the team and where they can go. And, yeah, that's, I just want to see them healthy. So none of them matter to me, really, except for – as long as they're healthy. Sorry, Lewis, not a great answer, but that's what you get. <laughs> maybe maybe Siakam or Kawhi will drop 50 at MSG on the 28th. So there you go, Lewis. Let's look for that one. That's that's all we have to look forward for the rest of the regular season. Yeah, good point. Uh, the next one is from Copper, at Cop and Stop. Your thoughts on running Pascal and Kyle with the bench lineup? Um, I actually 
actually, well, when we get to playoff rotations as well, is that like's been like has been mentioned, the bench unit has been bad. The only time the bench is good is when Lowry is in there. So I think that Lowry and four bench people has been serviceable, but I totally, totally would like to see Lowry and Siakam with three bench players. Depends on who those guys are. I mean, I I'd like to see Lowry and Ibaka get some time together. We we all know how how much how important Lowry is in terms of getting Ibaka into his spots and and helping him score. And I think that's another opportunity, like we mentioned before, for Siakam to be a playmaker as well. You can have that. That's a, a, a great example of where we could put Kyle into a more deferential catch and shoot opportunity, given that hopefully we have other bench players out there that can spread the floor, depending on how Norman OG are feeling that day. But yeah, I, I think that is a, a good potential lineup to open those second quarters when you're given Kawhi and whoever arrest yeah i agree and also it's it seems a little bit unfair because having let's say it's a bench lineup that means fred van vliet having fred van vliet kyle lowry and pascal siakam playing doesn't really seem like a bench lineup honestly it just seems like oh wow these are three incredible players they're probably going to hold it down and so there's a lot of there's a lot of benefits from running those together and also the idea, like, obviously Lowry plus bench is, like, sacred ground. It's it's very, very famous words around, like, Raptors fandom because it's been such a powerful and respected group that's played together for the past four, maybe even five years. And so running even one of them, it doesn't have to be both of them at, at the same time. Pascal to, you know, a lesser degree. But Kyle with bench, generally is a good lineup as well. So I endorse any type of mismatching like that. I think it's hasn't been explored enough this year. Not that I'm coming for Nick Nurse or anything. I just I like to see more from the starters rather than the end of bench experiments that we have been seeing, like the Patrick McCaw, the Jeremy Lin, things like that. Even though I do really like Malcolm Miller. Uh the next question. The next question. From Kazim Alakan does anyone really think Lynn is getting playoff minutes? Uh, um, does anyone or do I? Because I don't think that's going to happen. And Sam, I'm pretty sure from what I've heard from you say and write over the past few weeks, I don't think you think Lynn is going to get any minutes. And I think most of them are going to be transferred to old Fred Van Vliet, especially considering how well he's played since coming back from injury. Yeah, I agree. Almost wholeheartedly. There's probably, you know, a, maybe a six or seven minute stretch for him that he gets during a couple games in the playoffs when he really works the pick and roll well and he finds, you know, he, he finds the dive man every one in three times, but he's getting decent shots for himself the other two because he, he does look for his shot. Whereas the Raptors, the dive man, the pop man, really important to the offense and loud or sorry, not Lowry, Lynn going to the rim, looking for his own offense all the time and not finding it has really, really hamstrung like the bench offense quite often. And especially, it's just disappointing. We saw it last night as well. It's like to see Lynn and Lowry share the floor and to see pick and rolls go to Lynn and just to see the clock go down to 10, 9 seconds and a reset is really demoralizing. And obviously Kyle Lowry and co are probably like, damn, like, we we want you in here. Everybody likes Jeremy Lin. He's, by all counts, like, the best guy, and you want to see him succeed. But he just hasn't been able to to beat anybody off the bounce. His catch-and-shoot game has been really not impressive at all. So is there space for him to get aimants in the playoffs? Not consistently. I don't expect him to be a big story in the playoffs this year. And I guess, yeah, we'll bookend that. The next question. <clears throat> Who do you think has the best chance to knock off Milwaukee in the first round? Uh, are we are we thinking like a, who's going to be the next We Believe Warriors situation? Because I can't think of uh, any other time that an eight seeds being a one seed. Uh, Spurs and Grizzlies. Ooh! Oh my God! How did I forget that? Jeez Louise! That's embarrassing. <laughs> um, uh, do I? Who do I think 
Well, I mean, Vucevic is a matchup nightmare for Giannis, hey? If Orlando sneak in there, or maybe vintage D-Wade just taking some shots off the dribble. No, no. No, I doubt a team will really even get one game off of Milwaukee at the eight seed. It sucks to say. I mean, maybe if Brooklyn drop, but I, I don't see that happening. Other than that, what, maybe some 50, 50-foot Jeremy Lamb heaves could get the Hornets a couple wins against them if they sneak in? Yeah, I don't know, man. It's uh, I think Brooklyn could grab one for sure. They, they're high enough variance from three-point land. They got Joe Harris. Damari Carroll, the swag daddy himself, D'Angelo Russell, and I, I, I don't know how, like where Serge Ibaka plays really good defense against Jared Allen. I don't know that Brooke Lopez plays really good defense against Jared Allen. I think that Jared Allen is actually kind of a mismatch for Brooke Lopez. So I think if Brooklyn fell, that would be the team. But they're not going to win. I mean, <laughs> Milwaukee's—they're a fantastic team. They are by all metrics the top team in the NBA this year. And I don't think they should be taken lightly. And that's that's a big deal. A big, big deal going to the playoffs looking ahead. We won't get into it now because we have to win the first round. Adam will be back and we'll talk about lots of this stuff going forward. But the the Bucks loom large for the Raptors on the way to the first round. And I don't think they'll be taken out in the first. And I guess another question is, well, maybe that's, what's Nick Nurse even saying? I think this is Toronto slang. I'm not from Toronto originally, but like, well, actually, I think it's UK. That is very much Toronto. Yeah, it's UK slang originally, but Toronto now. What's Nick Nurse even saying? Do you have any qualms with what Nick Nurse is doing? Also, this is from Karn Sharma. Do you have any qualms with what Nick Nurse is doing? Do you have any problems with how he's handled the rotations, things like that? Um, no, not particularly. I mean, at this point, this is. The backstretch of the regular season here, he's really just kind of offered this as a proving ground for the second unit or those bench players to really kind of battle for their spot because we know once playoffs comes around, the rotation is going to get cut down to eight at most, nine players. So, look, the Raptors are locked into that two spot. They're one of the deepest teams. You might as well keep giving these guys some run to really kind of push themselves into those spots and make some internal competition. So as frustrated as I am on occasion the last few weeks of seeing the bench out there and give away a lead and it's kind of deflating after such a good start, I I understand the process. There's a long-term picture in play here, and I, I can't blame him for it. Yeah, that makes sense. And just today, even Nick Nurse, um, when, asked, when I asked him about OG Ananobi, where he saw OG fitting in going forward because of how different this year was from last year and what what kind of version he saw of OG being in the playoff rotation. He alluded to what you just said. He's like, everybody's getting a chance with the first unit, and when they play with the first unit, they look good, which is true. When Patrick McCaw plays with Kyle Lowry, generally looks good. When OG plays with Kyle Lowry, generally looks good. When these guys get these opportunities, they generally look good. So from that, I'm taking it that he is, like you said, a proving ground for all these guys to what is your ceiling and then let's see what your floor is with the bench because in a playoff matchup you know you don't want floor guys you want ceiling guys like Terrence Ross ended up being not so bad in the playoffs a couple times because every once in a while he'd make a crazy play like when he stole the inbounds pass from Paul Pierce and gave Kyle Lowry a chance to win the series like things like that is guys who who aren't gonna just do the bare minimum do their job because you need to play a little bit better in the playoffs. You need guys who can take it to the next level, why is, which is why Norman Powell has done bad in the playoffs, or sorry, not in the playoffs, in the regular season a couple times. But in the playoffs, you know, his next-level athleticism kind of vaults him into, okay, this guy can play now. And I, I, I agree with Nurse on that, that he wants to get people from a, a development philosophy, I suppose, that he wants to get the guys going and he wants to see guys through. For me, if possible, I'd like to see more experimentation with playoff rotation type players. I don't think McCaw should be getting that much run anymore, not in meaningful minutes anyway. And so I guess that is what Nick Nurse is saying. Um, Last question, kind of a a gag. I'll swing this one to you if you can uh, see if you can answer. Matt Chance, how did Samson rise to such prominence by the age of 13? (laughs) Because he's a boy genius. 
what's uh what's it what's that called he's in he's he was part of the mensa program (laughs) and here we are seeing him flourishing and reaching brand new heights can you imagine if somebody were to hear this and then actually read one of my articles they'd be so (laughs) disappointed they'd be like oh oh mensa you have to have like 160 iq to get in this guy he he's using commas wrong like that's yeah, that's true. I'm just trying to blend in. I'm very, I'm very, I'm very precocious. Real inconspicuous. Yeah. Also, uh, Katie Heindel's coming on next week, and shout out to her because she was the one who invented the Sam as a teen narrative. And is that where it came from? Because I'm, I'm a latecomer to this whole Raptors Republic stuff, and I just assumed that at face value you were 12 years old. That's Your voice just dropped at an early age. Yeah. Um. So the story is, we were planning the the christmas party for raptors republic and on the group chat i was like yeah i won't be there i live in mexico and so she was like oh what i don't get to meet the mysterious teen samson and i was like what i am not a teen what are you talking about and then she was like oh you just have like a you know a young energy i guess and then blake chimed in he's like plus he's like 15 and i was like damn and I was like, Blake, like when we hung out, I had a beard. He's like, oh, that's what you think a beard is. And I was just like, man. <laughs> so it's stuck ever since. Yeah. How did I rise to prominence? Uh, a generous Blake Murphy hooked it up. That's probably the best answer. And I try my best to be as good a writer as guys like Lewis and Vivek and Adam, who have just killed it this year on Raptors Republic. So that's that's my rise to prominence. And hopefully to fill half a shoe that William Lou left on this podcast. Oh, absolutely. That's going to be a big loss. But you've been, you've been killing it, man. The first, what's it been, a week, a week, two weeks now? Yeah, about a week. We're doing our thing. It's great to listen to. Thanks, man. I think uh, we're going to cut it there. If anybody enjoyed listening to this, feel free to check out RaptorsRepublic.com for more from Adam, more from myself. We do our writing there. It's probably a more concise take than what we pro- like what we provided here. And you can check out raptors republic on twitter instagram at raptors republic anything you like and just one more thank you to adam for hopping on adam anything to say before you uh get out of here uh i've got nothing i got nothing for you just uh more spicy siakam plays please and yeah keep a good times rolling all right have a blessed day everyone see you adam want to hear something amazing Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end. It's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.